Hello and welcome to the Essential Adventure Sport Podcast, where our aim is to shed some light on the world of adventure sports, be that top tips and best practice for coaches, leaders or guides, inspiring expeditions, or just a chat with one of the many interesting people who work and play in the outdoors. We really welcome interactions and discussions, so if you have an idea of a subject you'd like covering, or you'd like to contribute to the show itself, then please drop us a message. It's time to sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the Essential Adventure Sport podcast. Today we're joined by Pete Edwards of Prowess Climbing Coaching and alongside his coaching work, Pete's just completed a professional master's in elite performance where his focus was on research in elite climbing coaches. So welcome to the podcast, Pete. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for having me. No, no problem at all. Why don't we um, get you to introduce yourself to uh, the listeners at home, if that's okay? Yeah, no problem. So I'm a uh, professional climbing coach as of September last year when I left my job and decided to try and earn my keep with teaching people things, um, building on 20 years of climbing experience and 30 odd years of life in the outdoors. Um, yeah, it's a strange one because I've done lots of climbing and I've done lots of different disciplines, but I've ended up sort of special specializing over time. So when I was young, I did a little bit of paddling and I've done a little bit of mountain biking and a bit of mountaineering. And then it kind of like trimmed itself down into climbing. And then the, the climbing, I was like, well, I don't really enjoy this winter stuff. It's a bit cold and scary and I don't really enjoy the trad climbing stuff. So now I've ended up as a bit of a dedicated boulderer. Um, but on the coaching side of things, then you can still draw on those experiences from the past. So now I'm primarily coaching on boulders, but with a view to being able to use those skills in other disciplines of climbing as well, and possibly even in other adventure sports as well. Interesting. And, and like I said in the start, you've just completed your, your professional master's in elite performance. So what, what, what was that like? Um, a little bit of redemption. I did my undergrad um, back in 2002 and I did physics um, and spent too much time climbing, didn't go to any lectures and failed the degree. Um, but they say you never learn and use what you learn at university. Well, now I am using what I learned. It just wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Um, but it's been really interesting. It's been really eye-opening because it's involved um, observing six top-level coaches around the country and kind of seeing how they work, what they do, how they structure their sessions. Um, and I found it really, really interesting from an academic point of view to tie in a lot of the academic research that I've been reading and go, ah, this fits in here and that fits in there. That's makes perfect sense. Um, but also for, on a sort of personal level, either personal climbing and going sort of like, oh, yeah, I do that as well. Or a coaching method and going sort of like, oh, oh, that might be useful. I could use that later. So you've ended up with like, I was wearing three different hats during interviews. It's all getting a bit, ah, I don't want to write down. Yeah, so you found it, you know, outside of the um, the assignment writing, it's been it's been quite informative for your, you know, your professional coaching and sounds like for your personal climbing as well. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and I'm, I'm the only person that I can't coach. Well, me and me and my wife, we I just can't coach either of us for some reason. I think I get too stuck in the moment when I'm actually climbing, and I can't take that step back and go right. Okay, think about this objectively, and what do I need to do differently? But yeah, it's made a massive difference in my in my coaching abilities and the way that I structure sessions and the way that I look at different coaching sessions and what I'm trying to achieve. My whole coaching philosophy has been not quite changed, but reinforced. So now I know 
what I'm aiming for. Whereas I think before it was kind of just kind of sat there quietly in the background, un- unacknowledged as it were, you know. So Pete, you're very clear with the work that you do that you call it climbing coaching. So, you, you know, the, the, the coaching words, well, it's part of your, your company, isn't it? So mm. why did you go down that specific route of calling yourself a climbing coach rather than a um, climbing instructor or whatever it might be? I think it is, it's a it's a clear distinction, but it's one that's lost on a lot of people. And I think um, coaching versus instruction is is quite subtle, but quite, like I said, quite distinct. Um, I think for me, coaching is taking something somebody's current skills and improving them, whereas instruction is teaching them something new. Um, and it all comes down to one of the things from my master's degree was something called the spectrum of teaching styles from Moston and Ashworth. Um, Moston was a PE teacher in America, I think in the 80s, I don't know. Uh, and basically he came up with, he said that any education is a series of decision-making between the, the student and the teacher. And at one end of the spectrum, you've got 100% of the decisions made by the teacher, 0% made by the student. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got 100% made by the student with the teacher as a guide or even a self-teaching method uh, style where teacher and student are one and the same. And everything's kind of the 11 styles in between will break it down and, and progressively put more decisions onto the, onto the student and take them away from the, the teacher they kind of split in half so the first five styles are what's called reproduction styles i will show you something and then you go and do it whereas the last six styles are more what's called production styles so you're creating things for yourself and you're coming up with answers and even questions for yourself for me those reproduction styles at the start are more instruction here is how to tie a figure of eight here is how to do a bow rudder here is how to do a snowplow or whatever Whereas the, the coaching aspect comes into the production styles. I'm going to give you the tools to be able to go and do these things for yourself and to create them for yourself. And I'm going to end up as a, more of a facilitator of learning than somebody who, who dictates what's going to happen. It's much more student-led. It's much more um, reactive than... Um, uh, for, what's the opposite of reactive? Um, I don't know, lectured. So... I think for me, that's that's a really important distinction in what I do. I'm not going to teach you new things. Don't expect that. What I'm going to do is take what you already know and then tweak it and change it and improve it and just subtly make little differences so that you can improve in your own time with your own climbing. That's that's the critical thing for me. So did you make a conscious choice to to work more at that end of the spectrum or is it is it the way that your coaching's evolved and, and because of your experiences or what you've seen with other people or your experience of how um, working at either end of that spectrum, you know, where does that come from? Well, I started coaching with a group on a Friday night and a group of kids um, and some of them were climbing really quite well. And I found that I naturally gravitated to ones that were climbing a little bit better. Um, and it just naturally seemed that I was asking questions. I was prompting them more as opposed to demonstrating more. Um, and as the relationship built, I was naturally te- trending towards production styles anyway. Then I did the masters, read about the spectrum and went, ah, right. It makes sense now. Mm-hmm. And read about things like 
um, pedagogy versus andragogy um, and the difference in, in teacher-led to student-led learning and kind of went, I'm fitting into this second bracket. I'm fitting into this. There, these are these academic things that already existed that actually applied to what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, the, it was like a clear moment when it all came together and I went, it makes sense now. So, yeah, it's a natural thing that's kind of been solidified and I think that's one of the problems with academia is that most of what we do has already been discussed it's already there it's just that the people that are doing it don't know that it's already there and the people that are describing it don't necessarily know that that's what's already happening and there's a there's a gap there's a pracademic gap in between that needs to be filled I think that's the next big challenge that's interesting that you're saying that you were you know, you're already doing all these things and then you discovered there was a word for the things that you were doing, which sounds like what you were talking about then. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people do that. I mean, um, Nick and I work on coach education courses and there's a lot of time that we're, um, we're discussing some of the, the theoretical aspects more just to underpin the practical things that we're doing. They're definitely not theory heavy, but there's there's times when some of these words come out and they're, you know, to some people they go, well, that's a, a big word that I've never I've never heard before. And then when we get into it and explain it or, you know, look at how it can be used in a, a practical context, they go, oh, yeah, I, I do that, but I didn't realise that it was called that. When I work on coach education courses, um, I feel a certain obligation to make use of a particular language that's common currency between us as coach educators. And I feel the need to do that because when we turn to the available publications that British Canoeing have created, there it is. You've only got to pick up the training program and it's acknowledged. And I think that's a good thing. Um, the language has changed and evolved, but of course it can be a barrier for some people on those types of coach training courses. It, it looks a bit indecipherable. It appears to be rooted in jargon. And I had this experience uh, only about a week ago with a, a group of clients that were exploring CKI coaching. Uh, I, had a, I had a feeling that, that um, because one or two of them were already qualified in the scheme, they might not have necessarily encountered all of the language that's evolved in the last few years. So I threw a word out and at the start of the course, after a few introductions, I asked what the team knew about the, uh, the mystical word constructivism. And, um, you know, we all knew each other. So it was, it was easy enough to be honest with one another. And quite quickly, um, a couple of them said to me, yeah, never heard that before. And a couple of others said, yeah, we kind of did that on a uh, core coach training course, but please don't ask me to explain it. So we, we had a look at what it might mean. And um, we, we said, it's got to come from the word construct. So we or the students are obviously creating something. If, if, it, if we weren't, it would probably have a different name. And then we took a look at what, what the constructivism principle really means and we identified that it it would be rooted in the real world so we'd go and actually do some paddling in situations that people would find appropriate for their level of experience and we try to engage in skill learning 
in a real context. So brilliant. Yeah, yeah, we're putting skills into context. We're actually going to do stuff. And then we looked at it being a uh, rooted in, in, in problem solving. And we agreed that could sound a bit negative, but actually it's got solving in there as well. It's a solution. So if we consider going paddling into some wind and waves to be the problem, well, we're pretty motivated to tackle that problem because it's fun. And if we can find some solutions along the way so we can do it a bit better, do it a bit more enjoyably, it's going to be good. So it sounded like we were going to need to explore the possibilities of developing our skills through active experimentation in a real world setting. And we also agreed that that would require our students to get involved in the learning process and to make some decisions along the way. So it rather sounded like our job as coaches was to, um, to help that along. I'm trying not to use the word facilitate because it's another big word, isn't it? Um, and we, we just tried to find everyday language that was the kind of stuff we might use down the pub with our mates and that we wouldn't feel self-conscious about, but still represented and didn't lose the meaning of what we were trying to achieve through that coaching process. And I think we got to where we wanted to be. It's interesting listening to you say that because I touched on constructivism right at the end of writing my thesis and went, oh man, I wish I'd read about this more. Um, So bear with me because I might be wrong. I haven't read much. Basically, taking a constructivist approach is aligned with um, production styles of the Moston Nashua spectrum. So that's all aligned with sophisticated epistemology and sophisticated epistemic beliefs rather than naive beliefs. So it's all tied in there. And all of that, that production styles, is the decision making. It's exactly like you say. The problem, uh, the problem solving is the production styles. It's a sophisticated epistemology. So you're absolutely right. You've just got to it in a different route than the academic route. And this comes back to what we were talking about before, where we're saying there's a disparity here. The academics have already figured all of this out, you know, and now you're figuring this out for yourself. And if we told you what the academics had found out already, then you wouldn't have had to go through that sort of like scratching your head 10 minutes going, um, yeah, uh, yeah, um, I think it's this. Yeah. So it, it makes perfect sense. But the other thing that you mentioned about was um, really quickly is a, a, another little anecdote is about use, the use of language. And I think the use of language is really, really important with clients because it, it gives them a sense that you know what you're talking about. If you can drop a big word in there sometimes, then it just fills the, the client with confidence. I don't tend to have it with climbing, but I did used to have it a lot when I worked at um, a climbing shop many years back. And you would um, you'd get someone coming in and kind of looking at you going, well, you're just a bit of a scruffy bum who wants to work in the shop. And you go, well, actually, no, I, I know quite a lot, you know. Um, and they'd look at you and say, tell me about this jacket. And you go, oh, it's got a polytetrafluoroethylene membrane in there. And they go, what? And you go, yeah, it's just PTFE. I've just let the word. But it's filled you with confidence. On the flip side, if you don't do that, then they lose faith in you. I, I used to, I fit thousands of pairs of boots. And you had a lady that came in and she said, um, I'm looking for some boots. Are you going to measure my feet? And I went, no, I don't need to. I know what I need to know. And she lost all faith in me. She was not interested at all. Didn't want to know. And somebody else came over behind and started um, asking me about um, uh, problems in the foot. Um, I can't remember what it's called now. What's the inflammation and the tendon underneath the foot? 
anyway, some sort of medical problem. And I started going, oh, yeah, I know about that. Yeah, um, I'll start talking to you about that. And you could see her face change and go, oh, he does know what he's talking about. But because I hadn't given her that confidence in the process and the confidence in the language, she wasn't interested. So I think you're absolutely right. It's got to be the right language that, that kind of shows that you know what you're talking about. Otherwise, you just seem like you're rambling a little bit. I think I, think, um, I totally agree with that. And the word, the phrase that we always use um, on coach ed courses around that constructivist idea is to do with people generating their own understanding. And I think a lot of the time, if we go back to that instruction versus coaching debate, a lot of the time it's a case of copy me, do this, this is how you do it, follow this exactly, um, which is fine. And I'd like to explore that in a moment. You know, I think there are times when that that style is appropriate. Um, but if we were to then ask the question, why? Why is it you've just done that that way? sometimes that's where it breaks down because they're not able to explain because they don't have the understanding because all they've done is copy and followed, which might be appropriate in that moment. But if they want to go on and be able to transfer these skills and be adaptable with these things, then there's got to be an understanding of, of, of why those things are happening. I, well, we all, everyone's nodding. So I guess we all, we all feel the same way. Um, if they went away, just, just knowing that they're doing, that particular thing because Pete told them to. Well, if they climb somewhere else and it's slightly different, well, they can't transfer that as easily as if they've generated the understanding themselves. Um, and the second point you, you both talked about with the with the use of language and the use of big words, um, I delivered a, a, a coach course oh, a couple of years ago now um, with Adam, who was on one of one of our earlier podcasts. And the process is that prior to, to coming on the course, you don't really have to do anything. You can just come, turn up, and, and take part in what's going on. You can choose to register to, to attend the award, and in which case you get access to lots of information. One of these pieces of information you get access to is, a, is an e-learning package. And what the e-learning package is is basically the theory for the course presented to you on a screen. Um, and the, the particular candidates that came on had, had been really keen and they'd registered and they'd, they'd laid into this e-learning package. And for the first, well, hour and a half of, of the course, which is normally a great little introduction and getting people started, they were just laying into us about the fact that this is all for you university folks. And what, does, what do these words mean? Because they were totally out of context. They were just on a screen and there was no practical representation of what it looked like. Um, so we, we were straight away, as educators, were on a back foot because we were trying to <laughs> defend the use of the words, but going, you've kind of gone about it the wrong way, but that's not your fault because you just did what you thought you had to do, which was go through this, this e-learning process. Um, and I noticed that when people do it the other way around, where they, they take part in the program and they go away and they, they try these things out and then they access things like the e-learning, then it's great because it's a it's a memory jog or they can they've had time to reflect and process the information and then they see it on the screen and they can take time to 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 think about what all those words mean and and how they're relevant to their practical coaching matt that's uh, that's really interesting and it, it makes me reflect upon um the usefulness of some of this uh theoretical knowledge that's available to us 
And I often remind myself that we're, we're practitioners. We, we like being in the outdoors. We, we, uh, we only got into coaching because of our passion for the sports that we, uh, we love to take part in. And the, uh, the theory around uh, coaching process can be very useful to us. But of course, it's theory that should support the practice. Uh, occasionally, we can have revealing moments when an element of coaching theory leads us into a process of exploration and our coaching practice changes. Um, but I try on coach education courses to ensure that the theory we explore is supporting what people are doing rather than forcing them to embrace the theory, throw everything away, and then try to reinvent themselves as coaches. They're going to go through a process of change. But we have to begin with what they do. You're absolutely right. And it's something that you said there, Matt, about context. I think you've got to put it in context. You've got to have this theory and then put it into practice exactly as you say, Nick. Um, and it's it's really interesting because the, the 11 styles on Moston and Ashworth are all underpinned really early on in the book that says about something called the non-versus approach. And the non-versus approach basically says, look, none of these styles is any better than any of the others. You know, a command style, do this, like this, exactly as I say, is just as worthwhile as a guided discovery or a convergence learning style. It's just more appropriate for certain aspects, again, in the right context. And I think that's really, really important to remember. It's, it's things like you wouldn't want to use a guided discovery method to teach someone how to tie a figure of eight for the first time. That's not going to end well. That's, that's just, no, you want to get it right every time you do it like this, exactly like I tell you, and then you will stay alive because they're adventure sports. There's an element of risk in there in, in, involved in that. So in that particular context, command style is better. If I'm talking to somebody about the nuances in um, foot placements, a bit like you mentioned in one of the previous um, uh, podcasts, Nick, um, those little subtleties and those nuances of foot placement. Well, I want you to figure that out for yourself. I'm going to let, use guided discovery or, or divergent styles in there and, and allow you some, some decision making. But it, it's different context for different things. That's the important bit. And that's what the VAK thing is so important because you go, yeah, have the debate, great, but keep it in context and put it back into context. Because exactly like you say, we didn't get into this to be edu uh, to be philosophers or no one moves up to North Wales for the money. We got we move here because we love living here. We want to be here. We want to be outside. You know, that's the, the dream. I think outside of the um, <clears throat> the use of the theory to underpin as well, Sometimes I, pardon me, sometimes I use the, the research to, to support a way of thinking as well, especially if I get some people who've come from um, a system. I mean, I look at the way we used to deliver coach education programs, which was um, a little bit more towards that, that, that other end where we were talking about things having to be done a certain way and it had to look this way and there was a right and a wrong way to do things um and sometimes if um if i get someone on the course who's come through that system and we're presenting this alternative this constructivist style for example then it's great to be able to go well actually here's some research that supports that particular thing that we're promoting um and but i guess it's it's on them and it's on us then to to go away and to to 
to take a look at it and the word we used before is to go away and reflect on those things as well isn't it to, to make sure that it's working for us and we're able to to then go and apply it it's no good knowing a theory but then not knowing what to do with it i'd much rather someone knew what to do and and then like you said right at the start of the show you went oh there's there's a word for this stuff that i'm that i'm already doing and um, that might be a a better way or or an alternative way of looking at it um and yeah exactly i guess to some extent it doesn't really matter does it what it's called um, um do you think or 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 does it I don't know, you can get lost in a lot of semantic debates and going sort of, um, I put a, I'd shared a post the other day talking about the um, VAK learning styles. And yeah, that was very productive. We got 50 comments on the threads. So I'm going, oh, this is great publicity for the business. But yeah, and I think that people get very bogged down in the semantics of it. And you're going, well, VAK has been debunked. It's been, there's academic proof there that says, or rather, there is no academic proof that says that it works or it doesn't work. Um, so it's an interesting debate to have, but you don't want to get too sucked into just constantly having the debate. You've got to remember to put it in context later on and go, I still need to coach somebody. I still need to use this information. So I've kind of, yes, it is important, but it's only important to an extent, you know, and exactly a perfect example of what you were saying about long words, you know, start reading about some of the master's stuff and you read about things like sophisticated epistemologies or a sophisticated epistemic belief. Yeah, I can't even say it. And then you find out what it is and you go, oh yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm transferring yeah. knowledge to students. I'm transferring decision-making to students. Oh, that's what it means. Oh, there you go. It doesn't really matter if you know that epistemology is a thing, but it helps if you do because it means that you've got more ingredients to add to your to your thinking later hmm uh, just i'm going to go back a tiny little bit because that um i you know i observed that that thread that you had going on and i think i think it's more than 50 i'm sure i saw you know it was upwards of 50 comments that you know the same sort of people kept coming in and having a little exchange and i thought it was quite a healthy thing but for the people who don't know what you were talking about right then because you said VAK and they might be going well isn't that a type of hoover um sorry vacuum <laughs> vacuum cleaner hoover's a brand um um but what was it that you that you posted the other day because i think that might be worth a, a few minutes of discussion so um learning styles was something that um has been around for a long time it's been around in teacher education for an awful long time um I did some teacher training way back when I was at university um, and it came up then. And it basically says that people learn in one of three different ways. They're either visual learners, um, audio learners or kinesthetic learners, like learn by doing. So people either learn by seeing, they learn by hearing or they learn by doing. And it says that everybody's got a preferred style. So if you can match your teaching to the learner's preferred style, then they learn better. Um, it was a bloke called Gardner who wrote the original book, um, Howard Gardner, um, all to do with um, learning styles. What's been debunked is that people don't necessarily, there's no evidence to say that people have a preferred style. Nobody picks one style and says, that is how I learn. They learn as a combination of all three. And having all three styles in your repertoire and in your sessions means that you will naturally hit the, the points and you will catch everything together. But that's the bit that's been... Um, argued 
The problem now is, though, that you get a lot of people that are turning around and a lot of that thread with people that are turning around and saying, how is this still a thing? It should have been thrown out years ago. And you go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. This is still useful. We still want to be showing people. We still want to be telling people. We still want to be letting them do things. The key is that you don't pigeonhole people into one of those three and then go, right, I'm only going to show you and I'm only going to tell you and I'm only going to let you do. Let's show you all. Let's tell you all. And let's all let you all have a go. So it is, it was an interesting thread. It got, um, it didn't quite get heated, did it? It was still quite chill, which was quite nice. I was quite a bit worried at one point. Yeah, I think, I think some people have very um, strong opinions about, you know, some of those things. And hmm. um, it, it could have gone one way, but it appeared to be quite friendly. And um, yeah, I think it, on the whole, it was pretty good. Yeah. Nick, do you do you um, just on that particular topic, that whole idea of um, people having a, a learning preference? Um, what, what's your experience of, of of folk when you're coaching them? Do you do you observe that, or or are you exactly the same as Pete saying there that you're kind of trying to hit everything to give them the best experience they can get? Uh, sure, yeah, a couple of thoughts. Um... A quick anecdote, actually. Um, you know I'm a paddle sports coach and I've been involved with British canoeing courses for some years now. And, um, yeah, about 15 years ago, I used to occasionally turn up at um, Plaza Brennan and help out with the delivery of a training course that was called the Level 5 Coach Award. And um, it was always really stimulating because i get the chance to work with some of my friends and colleagues. And i get a lot out of it and on one occasion I was um, not required to deliver a coaching session but I was observing with a group of students on the course uh, a fella called Sid Simfield running a canoe skills session on the uh, on the lake um, at, the, uh, at the, the the top of the river there and um, I, honestly I forget the, uh, the 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 purpose of the session Sid was was um, uh, exploring a particular element of the coaching process and at, at the end of the 30 minute session we got together and one of the students said to Sid um, what uh, how did you he asked Sid how he structured his coaching to match the learning preferences of the students and uh, I thought well this will be interesting because we hadn't arrived at the the debunked phase at that stage um, and, uh, and Sid simply said I didn't uh, and that got everyone's attention and he said honestly I've only just met these people I've been on the water with them for half an hour I can, how can I possibly know other than through observing how they're responding to elements of the session whether in this moment they're enjoying uh, an active kinesthetic approach whether they want to uh, receive a lot of visual information or whether I need to get involved with audio exchange if you leave me with the group for a, a while longer I might discover something more about them through the coaching interaction but equally it's not fixed and it might change so I remembered that and I thought to myself wow yeah that's quite liberating actually because for a long time many of us felt that unless we had secret ninja skills that permitted us to identified just at a glance how somebody wanted to process their information we weren't quite going to have the, the coaching skills of our heroes 
Um, so something I, I uh, have noticed in my working life, uh, especially when I'm seeking coaching in more challenging conditions, depending on how good somebody's feeling about what we're just about to do, um, there can be a there can be a, 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 a link of sorts between a person's willingness to be active and experimental and to go and figure something out by doing it if they feel comfortable in the surroundings and if they feel they're being stretched and challenged in a way that that matches their needs if someone's feeling a little bit um, uh, a little bit stretched and especially if I invite them uh, they, they frequently tell me that they, 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 they like a bit of visual information and often that extends into a discussion my challenge as a coach is to um, provide people with the opportunities to receive the information and to, to create the information for themselves in different ways. Um, if I spend all day sitting in the eddy watching my students, um, that could be great and it might be ideal for them, but I might be missing the opportunity to provide visual information here and there that could in the moment be useful. So I try to remember to ask my students whether they at any given moment would prefer to explore some useful information in a particular way. And I also remind myself uh, that just because that answer might be appropriate at that moment, it could change over time. It might change during the session and it could be totally different the next day. Um, yeah, so there we go. No, that's great. I love the first the anecdote I, I've used that a few times because remember you tell me about that well a long long time ago when we worked together and I think it's a nice little one to to drop into people to go look it's not a it's not it's not as easy as you use a great word pigeonhole in people um, yeah. I think the idea that there's a we keep using the word spectrum but there is isn't there and people are going to fluctuate depending on all different reasons I think in the outdoors we seem to have a we seem to like a good model or an acronym or something like that and then we we stick to it like a rule um and you know vac is something that people can stick to because they remember it and they go oh right well it must be this this or this um and that's not always the case is it no i think part of the problem is that you can end up with your students just getting totally sidetracked by instead of actually trying to learn the subject matter they're trying to figure out oh, what what type of learner am i and you know you spend an entire session with someone and they come out and we go I, th I think i'm a visual learner but i don't know and it's, and it's a strange one for me because like personally and totally unscientifically i know that I can remember images from when I lived in Kent and we moved out when I was seven. I can still picture what it was like in my mind's eye. I have a very, very good visual memory. I won't remember what Nick's just said because it was a verbal, uh, and I just don't remember words. My brain just doesn't seem to function. So in terms of on a personal level, it makes total sense. But I think it's important not to get sucked into that too much and go this is a tool to do a job put it in context exactly like nick says put it in context of that episode of learning and use it in that episode of learning and then when that's done move on to the next one and maybe you'll reapply it next time like i say exactly like nick said you know and i think that's that's where the semantics can get bogged down like the acronyms and the models I think where climbing's struggling at the moment is that it hasn't really developed the models quite yet and I think 
where paddling's so far ahead of climbing is that it's had more time to to kind of work out how these models all fit together and and part of what i've been doing over the last five years since i started the first fundamentals courses is trying to come up with what are the axiomatic um parts to climbing how do we break this movement down this is a really complex infinitely variable subject matter so what are the what are the consistencies through this this comes back to that physics undergree that i an undergrad degree that i failed and it's put me in a really logical thought process how do we go from really simple to really really complex and what are the steps in between and we've managed to i've managed to get it down to about a dozen or so steps so far with working with clients and letting it naturally evolve so that's been a really interesting process going from like right okay so it's a, a series of holds and then it's a series of positions and then it's a series of movements and then you get a climb but the nice thing with that is then you can take any climber of any size and any description at any grade and go you're still going through this same process this is exactly how we're going through it whether it's me on a 7c boulder problem or it's somebody else on a on a tire difficile alpine route or it's somebody else on a, on a hard very diff climb in the lakes it doesn't matter you're all going through the same process in the same model it's just that the models haven't really been found and, and distributed that well yet and a lot of the guys that i was a lot of the people that i was observing for the master's degree are coming up with their own models off their own back and doing their own thing and there's not really a community of climbing coaches yet that actually gets everything together and, and staples it all down. Um, I remember in, in one of your other episodes that I listened to and you said about climbing coaching being quite young and it really, really is. Um, the development and the fundamental coaching courses only came out in 2014. Um, the SPA started in 1990. Um, the MIA started in 1960 something. I can't remember the exact date. So it's still very, very new. And I don't think that people have really explored it fully yet and actually found the models that work yet that's kind of one of the next dreams of mine is to kind of start to expand that and work with other coaches and go how do we get this stuff out there to people and how do we start talking about difference in coaching and instruction how do we talk about the models that we're all using you know the six coaches that i saw were absolutely fantastic but they're all working slightly differently and you're going this is great why can't everybody know this but then, I don't know, I suppose it gets to a point where you can't share everybody's experience with everybody else. It would just get too loud. The conversation would go insane. So just going back to something you talked about before, and um, I'm interested to do a little bit of exploring into it. You, you looked at coaching versus instruction, and um, it sounds like you're of the opinion that um, we're, we're able to slide along that, that spectrum. Um, depending on the outcome that either you want or the outcome that you've, the aims or outcome you've agreed with your students. Is that is that how you see most of your sessions going, that they, they fluctuate across a spectrum? Yeah, I think they have to. I think even if you're guiding where you're not actually teaching people anything, I think there's going to get to a point where you have to employ some instruction. You have to employ some coaching along the line. So you're going to be moving constantly up and down. Um, there's no point in me going sort of like right. I'm going to do a movement coaching session with you on on climbing for uh, a movement for rock climbing. Oh, but you don't know how to do a side pull, right? Now I'm going to have to step away from what I was doing and show you how to do this side pull using these reproduction styles. 
right now you've learned that now we've got that idea we'll come back in and then we'll do it and we'll put it into context and then we'll and i do an awful lot of that in sessions with things that i call um floor exercises um where i'm and replication training is the the, the kind of buzz phrase that i've come up for it we're going to take this complex idea of this particular move that you can't grasp and then because it's in a complex context and it's there's too much going on there's too much noise and i'm going to take that one little bit of information in the middle of all of that that i need to work on i'm going to pull it out and replicate it with something really simple really really simple so take something like um, moving the weight over one foot or the other like a rock over it's difficult to do on a wall it's difficult to understand the nuances of what's happening but if i get used to stand on the floor with your feet shoulder width apart and then move your weight over one foot lift a foot off the floor go back lift the other foot there we go this is now getting the so we've replicated the complex into simple but then a lot of that is coming down into practice styles and i'm employing um, reciprocal styles or self-check styles these are all production styles no they're not they're reproduction styles i was getting them mixed up um so yeah you've got elements of everything that kind of like swing backwards and forwards and, and a lot of the the instructors I used to work at the Brennan I worked in stores at the Brennan and you'd see a lot of people instructing and you're going you're actually doing really complex coaching you're actually doing a lot of really intricate little coaching aspects to your it's just not called coaching I think that the important part though is to as we exactly like we were saying before now let's put that theory on the back of all of that and we can ground it as it were yeah it's really interesting pete and um uh i love listening to the uh the descriptions that you have for some of your bouldering coaching and um i've picked up a new phrase there floor exercises um i'm gonna try and find a way to build that into my my coaching we, we don't have a floor but we've got eddies and we've got calm areas um now in 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 our paddle sports world, we, we often encounter the same challenge that you just described and that side pull example you gave. Uh, that can be a barrier to your students' uh, progression and you've got to find a way past that barrier before you can get them to a stage where they can then actively experiment and move on to another level of performance. And We, we, we have loads of these moments in, in, in paddle sports. Um, Let's pick an example. Let's say uh, we're, we're, we're paddling in a surf zone. We've got a client that wants to um, experiment with um, diagonal runs along the wave and create some speed changes and possibly even find different places on the wave where the boat could sit. Um, now, that's great. And so we, we set up the session to explore that. And for it to create some good outcomes, that client's going to want to make a takeoff onto the wave with different boat angles. But if their fundamental ability to control their boat during the six or eight paddle strokes required to make the takeoff is, is letting them down, if they can't manage precision of directional control without the complexity of a wave, well, we're not going to get much out that session. And it starts to become a moment of frustration for the students because their their motivation is to explore different things on the wave but they've got a barrier that's stopping them do that for me that's that's a moment to employ a different coaching style 
for me to find a quick fix to the problem in order for them to then proceed. Um, I might engage in a more direct style. I might provide some visual information. I might provide direct focus points for them to get better straight line control over that initial moment when they're trying to catch the wave. I don't get too hung up on whether it's coaching or instruction, but I'm definitely sliding along that spectrum towards a more direct style. It's more time efficient. It gets me quickly to where I need to be so the student can then open that door and step through it and start exploring the things that they need. Um, so yeah, quick fixes, floor exercises. I like it, finding some common ground there. Floor exercises are amazing. I can't imagine doing it in your environment. That would be insane. I, I'm quite lucky. I can go, all right, right. Take a couple of steps back away from the wall. Now we're standing on the floor. There we go, nice and easy. I can do my floor exercises. You, on a, on a white water river, you're going to be, uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, hang on a minute. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting carried away here. So, yeah, I, I, fair play to you. Kudos to you guys for, for coaching in that environment, you know. And that, that raises an interesting point because we, um, we've talked in the past about the difference between uh, adventure sports and let's call them traditional sports, so your football, hockey, those sort of things. And we talk about the fact that, that the environment is is both a a positive coaching tool, but it could also be a, a barrier and it could also be a, a challenge for, for not just performing, but for our coaching as well and how we organize that. Um, and I'm thinking about what you're saying there and I guess bouldering is is almost like a halfway house and I could be wrong I'm willing to be challenged on that but the fact that you can step back and step away and have that you know the ground where there's there isn't that interference going on of another environment I guess you could sit on a seat if you wanted to couldn't you and take five and have a brew and have a bit of cake and <laughs> oh you've seen me at the crag then yeah <laughs> Yeah, so you can you can step away and you can remove all of those um, those other parts of interference, like contextual interference that goes on, the, the things that get in the way or the nervousness because we can stand on solid ground, sit back, have a look. And um, I know use of video is probably something that, that you find quite, quite interesting and I'd, I'd like to explore that possibly in a bit. Um, but the idea that you can stop, do something and check something out and then get back on and they can do that in a way that they can really focus on that information that you're giving them is that have i have i read that situation right pete you've got it spot on about 10 years ago i was i owned a house around the corner and i rented a house uh, one of my spare rooms out to um a local paddle sport um enthusiast um and after taking the climb in several days he took me and went right we're going to go out on a boat so we went and paddled the upper glass limb, um, and I hated it. It was what it was what put the nail in the head on my white water paddling career. Because, and it was exactly as you say. Because I got halfway down there, I didn't swim until Beth Geller. I was quite pleased in hindsight, but at the time, I was just freaked out and going sort of like, I want to get out. I want to stop. I want to get. I want to just get on the ground, and and I can't. You can't stop until the gal. Like, what am I going to do? Like, traipse across several fields to a road with no car, and then carry my boat three miles down the road? It's not going to happen. And I, and that aspect of it, I just, I don't like it. I just know that's why I'm a boulderer because exactly like you say, if I don't like it, I let go, and I hit the floor, and I sit on my mat, 
and I wait until I'm happy again and then I can carry on. It's the same reason I don't do any trial climbing because of the commitment to the exposure. You know, you, you, you got to carry on until you've finished the route, you know, and, and looking back on my climbing career, it was one of the things that always held me back. You know, I, I backed off more routes than I've, well, as many routes as I've completed because I've got halfway up there and gone, nope, don't like it, going home. And so I'm very good at abseiling off very, very uncertain gear, um, but I'm not very good at completing routes and, and working on my limit. It's why I'm a boulderer. And it all, all kind of comes down to risk and consequence. I've, I've tried to explain this to people for years because obviously bouldering is a bit of a niche thing, really. And I say, well, there's, there's risk and consequence. And when you've got something like a grade three scramble, the risk of something happening is pretty low. But the consequence if it goes wrong is a helicopter and a flight to Stoke. With bouldering, the risk that you're going to fall off is incredibly high. The likelihood you're going to fall off is incredibly high. That's the whole point. But the consequence is negligible because we've taken care of it by massive bone mats that we carried all the way in there. So that's my brain doesn't seem to deal with the risk factor. It just looks at the consequence. And that's part of the reason I don't tend to do these things anymore. You reminded me of something that I'd I'd forgotten. I don't even know if Nick knows this, but um, when I first came to North Wales, I came as a as a I'll call myself a whitewater kayaker, but that would be giving myself more credit than I probably deserve. And 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 Canaris, one thing I'd never done was sea kayaking. In fact, only a year earlier, I'd um, I'd been able to buy some bits of equipment. Someone was selling some off. They 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 they'd quit, and I bought a couple of books. And I thought, I'm never going to use these. Why, why am I ever going to go sea kayaking? Are you kidding me? Um, and then I started working working for Nick over in Clamberis, and um, I slowly found that actually I need to spend quite a bit of time on the sea yeah, because that was a requirement of the job. So okay, no problem. Let's get myself qualified to be able to do that. So I went and did a. Um, a, a, one of these prerequisite courses that I had to do like a skills training a couple of days great no problem had a really good time came back and Nick said right you're going to do this this course this coaching course and it was a um it's what then was called the level three sea kite coach training and it was a two-day two-day program and um he was probably he, unintentionally he he took a constructivist approach <laughs> to my development because he said right go in a container pick a boat and you can use that for the weekend. So I went in and I had a look and I didn't have a clue really. And there was one of these particular boats that looked really nice. The shape was good. The color was nice. You know, it was, everything was appealing to me. Um, I thought that's the boat for me. Got it out, got it on the trailer and um, got to the venue. And uh, to this day, I have no idea what we did on that first day of that course because I spent the entire time just with the, with the massive wobbles, totally uncomfortable with everything that was going on. And all I wanted to do was get back. And I didn't take on board uh, hardly any information because I probably I played the part that I did, but inside I was going, Oh my God, I, I this is horrific experience for me. Um, so, um, as a result of that, I learned something <laughs> that actually colors of boats mean nothing. <laughs> there are many other factors that I've got to take into place, but, um it's it strikes me as a good example of 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 the environment being a barrier for me in that particular moment um whereas now i know that that it can be a really positive thing and if i use it in the right way then it can make 
the experience that, that the students that I work with have a really good experience. I guess if I don't play the game right and I take them into the wrong place, it can be a really negative experience. And it, it links with what you're talking about there to do with, you know, risk management and the the, the potential problems that um, that risk plays within our coaching. How much does that a factor for you? Um, well, it's it's interesting because COVID's kind of changed the direction of my business quite a lot. Before, when I started back in September, I was only um, qualified to do indoor um, coaching. So I'd just been working in an indoor environment, um, which I'll come back to in a second. Now I've started running outdoor courses because it's the only environment I'm allowed to work in. Um, and I'm finding that it's kind of distracted me quite a lot more from the actual coaching experience. I'm thinking a lot more about pad placements and safety aspects. I'm also finding myself teaching a lot more safety aspects and explaining more things to people because the coaching philosophy that I want people to, to go out on their own and enjoy and learn on their own still sits there in the background. The difference is that now I have to teach them how to manufacture, how to manage the environment, sorry, to make the environment safer than to be able to not only learn but participate in the slightest so um in the first place so i think for me um that may plays a massive deal i think the problem that i have at the moment is that the niche um discipline of climbing that i have has very little consequence comparatively to other areas of, of climbing and people tend to think they can do it on their own and they go i was having this conversation with a very experienced friend the other um the other day when i was at the crag and we went yeah because climbing is not going to because bouldering is not going to kill you people think they can just learn by doing and that's all very well and good until you break an ankle or an arm or a whatever and that's the battle that i'm now having with people and going sort of like you still need to pay attention to these details you still need to know this this stuff to keep it safe um you know um when i was working at the brennan in stores someone came to borrow a bouldering mat out of stores to safeguard a um uh, a rope access course he was doing and he was two or three feet off the floor he said i just want to chuck a bouldering pad down anyway yeah there you go do you know what you're doing yeah that's fine okay help yourself walk past 10 minutes later to get a, a cup of tea and walk past the pad and went um dude you might want to turn it over the other way up because it doesn't work the way you've got it at the moment and it's these subtle little differences that you go you, you really have to start paying a lot of attention to this sort of stuff it's, it's quite interesting What's even more interesting from the master's degree is that a lot of the academic stuff and a lot of the academic research thinks that it's the environment and the challenging environment that you guys tend to work in that dictates the, the learning, um, not the learning styles, the teaching styles that the coaches use. And it's a reason that they teach in such an advanced sort of way. What I found observing my sessions for the masters, which were all on indoor climbing walls, and five of the six were on bouldering walls, is that the coaches still operated in exactly the same way. The environment didn't actually make any difference. They were still, sorry, correction, the environment they were coaching in didn't make any difference to their to their complexity of coaching. They were coaching in exactly the same way as I would expect to see if I watched Nick coaching on a on a whitewater river and so i've ended up kind of that was kind of the crux of my thesis is going oh, maybe we need to rethink this now what i don't know is and what i couldn't have known was whether the fact that they the coaches had learned outside had influenced the way that they coach 
or whether it was why they were coaching the way that they coached. They didn't have enough information. But what was interesting is that coaches climbing, uh, teaching indoors show exactly the same signs as you would expect from any other adventure sports coach, according to all the research that's out there, which was kind of fascinating, really. Yeah, we have, um, yeah, I guess we have a similar thing in, in paddle sport and um, I find myself having to explain it sometimes on these courses because we have a a, a coach award scheme that um, the umbrella name is the coach award and then within that you can do different disciplines and work in different environments and um, there comes a point where people might make a comparison between a sheltered water coach, between somebody who can work in moderate water environments and then you get uh, this this end category, which is, a, is an advanced sea kite coach, for example. And the word advanced actually has nothing to do with the ability or the, the, the coaching behaviors that are demonstrated. It's just an environmental um, label saying you can coach in advanced environments. And, and what I find myself explaining is that if I went and watched someone deliver a a coaching session on a in a as an advanced sea kite coach and as a moderate water sea kite coach and a sheltered water coach what i'm going to see is the same types of coaching behaviors happening the only thing that's changing is the environment so there's other considerations you know there's safety frameworks etc but um and and other things might play more of a part so psychological um aspects within the within the students but then that depends if they're used to that environment maybe that's just as much or just as little amount of psychological impact as there is in a sheltered water environment. But the important bit is it's the, it's the coaching uh, environment that gets that word advanced. It's not, not the coaching behaviors because if we're doing a good job with our coaching, well then um, it should be great in all those different places. There's just added challenges or there's more opportunities sometimes um, in those advanced environments than in the in the more sheltered areas. So yeah, yeah, I think again it comes back to um, to language in some respects as well. And the the point you made about the bouldering mats, uh, an interesting one in relation to risk that sometimes we use we use or we apply equipment because we say right, well that that is going to keep us safe or that's going to prevent a problem. But sometimes the the idea that we put a helmet on somebody or that we give them a bouldering mat in itself is a problem because it creates this sense of safety and security around the person. So if there's a bouldering mat, I can fall off here because I'm going to land on that. So therefore I might approach something in a different way. If I wear a helmet and I'm rock hopping, well, that makes me safe. Well, it doesn't you know, protect every other part of your body and your boat, but it can sometimes give us a, a false sense of security, can't it, when we're engaging in some of these activities? Yeah, it's called a heuristic trap. Um, I don't know much about it. Another student was doing something on it, but I do know of heuristic traps. There you go. Nick might know a little bit more on this one. Um, I saw a video of someone posted on a bouldering problem on a sea cliff, and he was wearing a helmet. Um, and it became this big talk. And he was like, well, what's wrong if I wear the helmet? And I go, well, if you think that by putting a helmet on, you're making yourself safer and you ad adapt your behavior according to the fact that you think you're safer because you're wearing a helmet, then you might end up making mistakes that aren't actually going to help you. The climbing helmet he was wearing isn't rated or tested for the, for the type of impact that you would have had anyway. So he's not actually any safer than he would have been anyway. 
it's a bit like saying um I'm wearing a high-vis jacket, so, you know, I, I am safer than I would be if I wasn't wearing a high-vis jacket, so now I'm going to go up Crib Goch. And you go, yeah, it's not it's not designed for that, it's, and it's a heuristic trap. And uh, Nick, Nick, you might know a little bit more about heuristic traps. And Well, um, I was listening with interest to y- your um, uh, your, dis- your description of the, the research you're doing and, and the coaching behaviors that you observed amongst bouldering coaches and then you drew a comparison with um uh, adventure sports environments where the perceived or the actual risk is much more prevalent and um i found myself thinking about um why uh you might have seen parallels between coaches in those differing environments and I guess it might be useful for us at this stage to acknowledge that most of us, most of the time these days, are trying to coach independence in our students so that they can go and make some good decisions the next day when we're not around. And I don't see, I don't see a particular disconnect between an environment in which I typically work and the one in which you find yourself, because there are so many. Even in a even in a wall setting, in an indoor setting, um, you've got such a range of potential bouldering problems that um, you can't be there for your students every time they set off up a chosen problem. And if the coaching style that you've adopted with them has been pretty direct, you've found answers for them, you've got them to copy you. That's great if you want them to get to the top of that specific problem but it's not going to help them the next day is it when they when when they're needing to apply what they've learned into novel settings and that's what we're about um when i go tide race paddling with my clients um it's it's an open and changing environment and it's almost certain to be somewhat different the next day so i know i'm not doing them a, a, a uh, I'm not doing them a favor by having them copy precisely what I require of them throughout the day. Because if they then go off to the next headland or they come back to the same place the following day and the conditions have set up in a different way, they're going to be at a loss to know how to then apply the skills they've learned with me. And maybe, just maybe, it's it's, it's not about the level of environmental challenge but it's about the degree of independence that our students are seeking to gain in their chosen sport i re- i reckon you know thinking about it and reflecting on it while you're talking that that could be a reason why you've been observing those coaching behaviors possibly and i think it's interesting because I, listening to you talk then i thought actually yeah, when i started coaching all those years ago I, I climb a lot harder than most of the students that I was coaching back then. And when they asked me a question, I'd try and think about it and try and figure out how I was going to try and work around this problem. And then a bit, hang on a minute, get on the wall, do the move, right? Ah, no, okay, yeah, now I've figured out what I need to do. And then I can relay that to the students. Whereas now that I'm much more experienced, I don't have to get on, the, I don't put rock shoes on most of the time that I'm coaching. I don't need to. I can sit there with my coat on and a cup of tea which is what I do best, to be honest. Um, so I think a part of that is experience and part of that is, is developing um, 
the the ideas the principles and the procedures exactly like you say to give people the tools to go and be able to have transferable skills to use them in different environments yeah. and that's what i'm all looking for is these the, what are the principles and what are the procedures that we can put in place in the background that can then be rolled out regularly because there's like exactly like you say you don't want to hire me to go and climb all your climbs for you so you can copy what i do apart from anything else you're going to be a different shape to me you might do it differently so you know it's it's transferable skills isn't it it's, it's finding mm. that sort of thing i think one of the problems i'm gonna flip this on its head because i have a question for you both about the paddle sport world and i'm intrigued with climbing there's um a bit of an idea that it's all about ground up trad that's what's important that's and you can go into your bouldering and you can go into your sport climbing but they're practiced for doing your ground up trad so there's kind of, I think there's a lot of people that kind of like look down their nose on certain disciplines. Um, little story, little anecdote. I had a guy who came in said Joe Brown's once when I was working there and we got talking about maps and guidebooks. I said, oh, the best maps are in the Fontainebleau guidebook. He says, oh, you're a boulderer. I said, well, yeah, I am actually. He went pathetic and turned and walked out of the shop. <laughs> His poor wife stood there like didn't know what to do. But that's the kind of environment and atmosphere that you're often confronted with so here's my question is it a bit like that is there a discipline of paddle sports which you kind of like everybody kind of like looks down the nose at a little bit goes yeah yeah okay yeah um uh, there you go i'll 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 have a go at this one um i don't think there is um a discipline that people look down the nose at and go, oh, what's, you know, what's, with the exception maybe of like canoe ballet. Um, but, um, um, which is, if you've never seen any canoe ballet stuff, you need to go and look it up. It's an amazing thing where they, they get the boats to make some beautiful shapes. They do it to music and some people wear full dinner jackets and, and, and dresses and things like that. Actually, it's quite a, it's quite a lovely thing to watch. So that's not fair of me to say that, but, um, no, I think, I think we we have quite a um a nice community obviously whitewater paddlers if they're only into that well then everything else might look a bit weird which is fine i my example from before i'd never done any sea kayaking and i thought why would i do that because i had an impression in my mind of what sea kayaking was all about when i was 18 or 19 um so maybe there's a little bit about not necessarily understanding there's a guy who um he was a student at John Moore's. I remember we had a day out uh, last last year. Nick and Adam were working together, and I was doing a bit of filming work. And um, Matt's a, a very talented whitewater kayaker, and uh, he came out for the day as part of the group. Uh, his experience level in a boat was probably well beyond the other people within the group. But it was sea kayaking; and it was a relatively new thing. And there was a moment in the day where the majority of his group were working on some. Um, working on a set of moves in simple-ish conditions, and um, Nick found himself with, with 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 Matt and said, "Yeah, should we head out and hit up the the main tide race here at Penrymar?" And he said, "No, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll have a go. It might be all right." And he he went out and he had his fun, and they came back, and I just happened to check in with him and say, "How was that, Matt?" And he said, "Oh my god, it was amazing." <laughs> That's not what I thought sea kayaking was all about. It's it's a whole area that he wasn't aware of. Um, he'd never had any exposure to it. And then he was able, interestingly, to draw, obviously, to draw a lot of parallels from his whitewater kayaking world because it's a very similar environment. He had to 
make some adjustments because of the you know boat shape and length and all those sort of things and the power of the water and all those different elements but um it was interesting for him to come back in and he probably started the day thinking oh sea kayaking and about to finish the day going oh sea kayaking um so i think there's probably those things that happen because if if you tend to be involved in one discipline well then it it can cost quite a bit to you know boat and equipment and all those elements so there aren't many people who on a whim go and buy a two thousand pound sea kayak to have a go um say you know if they're a, a whitewater kayaker for example so i think there are some barriers to crossing over maybe that that, that exist um but not that i'm aware of there being something that everyone looks down the nose at uh, nick might have another idea on this than i do um no, I think I think you've nailed it there, Matt. I'm trying to. I'm. Tr- I've been trying to think of a discipline of paddle sport that we could all enjoy um, ridiculing, and uh, I can't find one in this moment. So you know what? I, I, I don't. I think it's a shame that uh, that Pete, you, you, you feel that boulderings looked upon in those ways, because uh, I've had I've had to really address this in the last year, and it and it's it's given me cause for reflection because as you know, Kelly got into climbing. If I'm to be absolutely honest, I'd rather hope that we might have um, simply enjoyed a range of fairly low grade, multi-pitch traditional routes in North Wales. That would have suited me just fine because it would have played to my, my strengths. Uh, I've got a bit of rope work and I can move around on the rock reasonably capably as long as it's not very hard. Yeah. And as you know, because uh, you've done a bit of coaching with Kelly, she's really getting into the technical development of her, of her skills, the movement skills on the rock. And, it, and I found myself experiencing a sinking feeling as I realized that I was probably going to have to get into this as well. And I knew why I hadn't done much bouldering in the past because I found it quite difficult. And sure enough, we went back to the RAC boulders after your session with Kelly. And I had a pretty hard time getting up a lot of things. Um, It's been good for me. It's been very good for me. And the anecdote you told about being in the climbing shop, um, it reminds me of many years ago, I was in the Frixan pub on the edge of Llanberis. And the uh, the legendary Johnny Dawes was was holding forth at the bar, and we were all gathered around him, listening to his anecdotes. Part of the group was a, a well known guidebook writer, who um, who was particularly keen on the bouldering scene in those days. Um, we don't need to know who it was, but we all watched with 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 delight as as Johnny took him to task on his on his choice of uh, choice of climbing discipline. And the thing I remember is is the way Johnny emphasised the B of bouldering and just kept saying the word bouldering. Um, and it, it was funny. And maybe Johnny's allowed to do that because he perches on minuscule crystals 20 feet above his last marginal bit of gear placements, which is a, is a trad experience I don't want to have in my life. Um, but I think that when I've been climbing, and Matt knows that I'm, I'm, a, I'm an occasional, you know, 
if I read a guidebook description that describes a, a climb that might on the face of it be within my grade, but then has the phrase, a boulder problem crux, I'm probably going to go nowhere near that climb because I know it's going to find me out. And my motivation in the last year for going to the wall, taking on a few boulder problems, has been to make those moments a little bit easier, a bit more accessible. Yeah, I, I like journeys up the rock. And I don't see it I don't see a an either or situation here. It's it's not a requirement that I become a boulderer or a trad climber. I just recognize that bouldering is gonna help me with other elements of climbing if that's what I want to do. And in and of itself, I fully recognize that it's a it's it's a uh, it's a sport that stands on its own two feet, especially with the Olympic disciplines that uh, have come in. It won't surprise you to know that I've, I've watched every World Cup series uh, on YouTube because it became, it became required viewing in the house for a while. And I, I was nothing but impressed. Uh, with the lead climbing, you can kind of see, all right, you know, they're making some hard moves. I can, in my imagination, I could put myself there, even though the, the difficulty was far higher than I could ever achieve. But the bouldering discipline, I, 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 would, I would be in awe of the fact that they could get off the ground. Some of the challenges those elite climbers were taking on that they would have been doing as we speak at the Tokyo Olympics if we weren't in this weird situation was so impressive to me and I could feel my motivation levels creeping up a little bit I thought yeah yeah uh, I would uh, I would enjoy doing a bit more of this um, there's so many bits to unpack in there like, there's a couple of little phrases I use with people so one of them is um, it's bouldering if you're not falling off you're not trying hard enough that's the whole point and that's a real re re revelation to me because one of the things that's been a barrier in my climbing has been an un unwillingness to fall. Um, I found myself lead climbing at a very early stage in my development and I didn't get any coaching and I didn't get to climb with people who were more experienced than me. So I very quickly learned not to fall off, which massively hindered my, uh, my ability to push through the grades. And Matt's smiling now because I did fall off once and I did land on him and we, we both ended up at the, uh, the foot of the climb uh, writhing around in a mixture of, of amusement and agony. Uh, the only good bit about the story is that I hadn't really made very much progress up the climb before I, before I slipped off. Um, it was another reinforcing moment when I said, yeah, I'm not very good at this falling business. Um, so, We've got the bouldering mat, we're heading out there, and I'm learning to fly. Sounds good. But remember the other one is that bouldering is 90% resting, 10% failure. There's an error margin in there for some success. But yeah, I think last year I went and tried a problem up in the pass and spent a combined six and a half hours to climb it once. I got to the top and I went, ah, oh, I've done it now, I'll go home. And packed up my stuff and went home. Six and a half hours for 30 seconds of climbing and then went home. Wow. So that's the, most of that, 90% of that would have been me sat there, exactly like you said earlier, Matt, sat there having a cup of tea, reading my book, doing something like that, and resting. And then occasionally you climb on and you do one or two moves and then you fall off. And then you go back to resting. Interesting. 
Interesting. Well, welcome to bouldering. But, and this is the important bit, is that that's that's fine if you want to be a boulderer. And if you want to go bouldering, that's the mentality you have to get. A lot of the bouldering that I've done with people before is going, you're bouldering like a trad climber. Think differently. Do this differently. You know, and it'll be the same for you guys. Now, this isn't the white water. This is a sea wave. Paddle differently. Think differently about the position you're in. Part of the reason that I coach on bouldering, though, is because it's so much easier to coach on. It's not the fact that I want to turn people into boulderers. One of my regular clients want, was getting coaching so that he could go and climb in Yosemite. And he wanted to go and do some big oars in Yosemite. But I can't do movement skills with you when you've done 30, 40 moves in a row because you won't remember what you've done wrong at the start. If I do it on a boulder problem, then we can tweak stuff, adjust it. We can, And I'm using the environment and that replication floor exercise kind of way to work on skills that are transferable into other environments in the future. Sometimes it works the other way around. Sometimes you end up putting somebody on a rope and doing top rope routes or lead routes to be able to improve their bouldering. So there's a little bit of, you know, you kind of pick in the right environment to work on with the client. But I think still, certainly when I was at university in Lancaster, which wasn't quite as progressive an area, but then bouldering was certainly looked down at, people look down your nose their nose at you and i still get it a little bit now actually weirdly by johnny Dawes several years ago who was looking for a b-layer to go and climb scimitar ridge and he came into joe's and he was asking the other guys that were there who he knew and he turned to me and he went what about you are you a climber i said yeah i'm a boulderer and he turned his back on me he physically turned around and put his back towards me now it's johnny okay fair enough and he, he it's only because he was so single-minded on what he was trying to do at the time but i was a bit like come on You've climbed all sorts of boulder problems around here. You know the scar. Oh, never mind. I went and made some tea. So. <laughs> oh wow! I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it's, it's it's part and parcel of it, and it's fine to an extent, you know. And times are changing, like you said. The Olympics will have a massive impact. It's just a different thing, but it just gets frustrating that you go sort of like they're not mutually exclusive you know you can go and do your trad routes and i can go and do my boulder problems and we're not hurting each other not really other than the fact that we're parked in the same car park what difference does it make you know yeah and, and of course johnny's been developing his hands-off style uh walking up various routes which frequently are uh, are only slightly grander than 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 some highball boulder problems i, I reckon i reckon I've got this vision of him driving up the pass, getting out of his car, looking around, checking that there's no one watching, and then doing a bit of bouldering. I reckon he, he's a secret aficionado of, uh, of some of these boulder problems. He just doesn't want you to know it. I think he protests a little too much, Pete. Yeah. Get him on this podcast one day, uh, ostensibly for another reason, and then we'll challenge him about yeah, it. Ask him about his bouldering first ascents in the Peak District. See how many he can come up with, because I'm sure there's plenty. I know there's plenty. You look for his name in that guidebook. So yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get a bit of uh, background from you, and then we'll uh, we'll lure him into our trap. Do a bit of research. I'm ambushing him like a Trump interview. Um, <laughs> um, just one thing that, that just occurs to me, and I am conscious of time, and um, it, maybe this is our our, our finishing little. Uh, little statement but i found it interesting and i've not really thought about it too much that during that last exchange you and nick you kept you you kept referring to the 
to the to the bouldering that you were doing as uh, a problem so it's a bouldering problem and um that's a great word isn't it because that that requires us to to solve it in order to to be successful which when we think about some of the things we've spoken about this evening that, that that's what it's all about isn't it it's about having a problem and then you having to figure it out and i guess you could one option you could take when you're working with people is that you could just say this is how you do it and they go oh great i've done it and they they can tick it off in their logbook as yes i did that that i did that problem but really they've they've not done the problem all they've done is they've 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 copied you doing something so um does, does that play any you know do you think about that and that use of the word problem and does that influence you at all with your with your coaching uh the problem is is largely just climbing vernacular they've always just been known as bolder problems but um i think it's it's something that you used to get when coaching climbing started um and it became a thing of don't teach the climber the moves don't teach the climber the route teach them how to work the route and figure it out for themselves um you used to get some coaching courses way back when in spain and greece and places and they said climb 8a within a week and they just pick a climb and they just train you and get you strong enough and with the right moves to get up this 8a and then you go back and you climb 8a but you can't do another one you can't pick any of them um whereas i think with bolder problems these days with the coaching it's a case of again it's the principles and procedures how do we where are the things how do we work this out for ourselves the one interesting one i've had recently because with covid obviously i haven't been able to climb and train very well so i've been a bit off form personally so i went i kind of went well i'm not going to try and hit any high notes this year i'm not going to try and climb any particular grades i'll go and try and develop some new places i know a few crags that i haven't got any roots on and that's a totally different kettle of fish like because all of a sudden you don't even you don't know if it's possible you don't know how it's possible you've got nothing else to go on one of the the quick fixes that you get these days the joys of modern life is that you can rock up a rock up at a crag somewhere and go oh look here's johnny's wall which is the real route um named after someone um and you know you can i can't quite figure out how i'm going to do it i've got phone signal quick search online there we go find a video watch somebody else doing it right that's how we do it and then you jump on and you do the same moves whereas first ascents totally different first ascents there is no video because no one's done it before so you kind of have to try and figure it out entirely from scratch and a lot of it is decision making and and i think a lot of the theory that i've been developing has made it a lot easier because then you start looking at it in a different way and this is nicely neatly brings us full circle within the interview because we go well this is why we're now tying in the the academic practice with the actual practice and we're going right i need to pull onto these two holds but that means that i need to be pushing somewhere over there so that and i need to go that way so i need to turn my body this way and and it all kind of combines in together to be able to unlock this problem and this problem solving and i think that's where the coaching comes in if the coaching is done well then the client can replicate that that problem solving at a later date on any terrain in any discipline in any country anywhere you know and it can be applied to any climate that's the that's the dream that's the dream with coaching if i can come up with a with a, a formula for solving any climb you know then we're on a winner and that's what you can then roll out to the clients and go this will make you a better climber mm. 
yeah, it's that idea that they're that they're thinking, isn't it? Yeah. A lot, a lot of the, even just you were demonstrating then with your hands, and you obviously sat at a desk, but you were demonstrating, and you could see on your face that you were you were pulling that face, which is a great indicator to us as coaches that that we're doing the right thing because it's making you go hmm right and you you know you're pulling those those faces that show that you're thinking and i think without that without that thinking going on all you're doing is you're just copying and replicating and if you're not thinking well then you you can't be you can't be learning i don't think you can't be developing your own understanding because it's just watch do repeat isn't it um, it's the two big questions that I always ask clients, or the two that I seem to ask them all the time. How does that feel, and what do you think? That's the why I just constantly ask them. What? Do you, how did it feel? Can you t- tell me how was the pressure on your hands? Where was the pressure on your feet? Did you feel imbalanced? How, what? T- you tell me what you felt, and I don't really need to know. I just need to know that you're thinking about it. That's all I'm interested in, because I can't. I can't feel it for you. There's no point in you know. And you can't feel it for your clients on a, on a paddle sports session if they've got the balance of the boat right, if they've got that bow rudder. You'll feel it when it's right. And you'll get that intrinsic feedback. I, use a lot of, um, I talk to people a lot about intrinsic feedback. And that's what they need to listen to. And they need to tune into that. Ironically, then you get to that point eventually past that where you go, right, now you don't want to be listening to that intrinsic feedback. And one of the specifics about bouldering is that you can try it over and over and over and over again until eventually it gets you get it that one time and then you end up in a flow state and that's a whole other ballpark and a whole other kettle of fish where then you're not thinking and you're not feeling you're just letting everything happen naturally and just going through the motions you know and when you get it right then you get a problem that 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 sequence of me waving my arms around was a problem i did what five years ago something like that i still remember the moves because it was in flow and it's ingrained and i'll never forget it you know so I'll be sat in the pub in years to come and somebody will say about carnage of Buscovia. You're like, oh yeah, you get the pocket like that. And then you reach through to a slope, to a slope to the basket match and go. And it's ingrained in the back of my head. Hmm. And, and that that's, because, that's because you, you figured it out, isn't it? Not because yeah. someone said, you, you go for that pocket. You go for this, you go for that. Because you're going to forget it. You're going to get instant success potentially, but you're going to forget about it. Um, that's that's brilliant. What a great way to 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 end the podcast, I think. Um, Pete, thank you very much for your time tonight. It's no, been more than welcome. It's Thanks been, for having me on. Yeah, I know it's been brilliant. I, I I I've really really enjoyed the conversation, and I, you know I know Nick will have done it. He'll he'll speak for himself in a minute. But um, yeah, it's been it's been really enjoyable, especially to have it your your fixed. Um, you know your discipline that you work in is a is a is a fixed place so it's really it's been really interesting to, to draw parallels and to and to have that exchange between what you do and the things that we do and actually a lot of the things are very similar because it's it's coaching and it's effective coaching behaviors that we're looking at isn't it so thanks a lot for your time tonight pete no you're more than welcome one quick thing on that said about the environment that problem that I said about the end carnage was a project mm. that i tried um for four years going back every year for four years to get that thing done and it's still exactly the same as it was whereas you guys like the water moves constantly it changes constantly it's fantastic to watch i mean awe of you guys coaching in that environment is fantastic well there you well, go listen, um it, it's it's wonderful to uh share a discussion 
uh, between a bunch of people who are doing similar things in different environments. And I, I found it really stimulating to, uh, to listen to, to your reflections on your work and to compare them with what I've experienced. So that's been brilliant, and I'm sure it'll make for, a, for an interesting listen uh, when we put the podcast out. Thank you very much for, uh, for your time this evening. Uh, yeah, and I hope that the Boulderim performance business continues to grow with our, uh, with our newfound freedoms and the ability to get back out um, outdoors. It won't be long, hopefully, before the climbing walls reopen and, and you'll be able to get back into that world this winter. So I look forward to bumping into you in there or out there. And uh, thank you very much. Where, where can people find you, Pete, if they want to go looking for you and get a little bit of coaching? Um, we've got, uh, I've got a website, uh, prowesscoaching.co.uk, or if you search for prowess climbing coaching on Facebook, then I'm on there. And as we said earlier, sometimes sharing some academic stuff, sometimes sharing some, um, uh, some more climber orientated stuff. It's a bit of a mix. Um, so either of them and all my contact details will be on there. But yeah, even if it's just to have a chinwag or to have a chat about coaching stuff, feel free to get in touch. I'm more than happy. This is, this is the job that was created for me. It was almost like someone made my ideal job. So, you know, I'm quite happy. Half the time I have to tell myself, no, don't give it away for free. You know, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to earn some money from this. So, yeah, even if people just want to chat, yeah, feel free to get in touch. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Pete. If you've enjoyed the show, why not take a look at our Essential Members programme? For only £3.60 a month, you get exclusive access to a huge range of videos, articles and webinars covering technical skills, leadership principles and coaching issues from the world of paddle sports, with many topics easily transferred to other adventure sports. We think it's amazing value, so come and check it out. Remember, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, have fun and stay safe.